0: Kia ora koutou everyone and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey for the Kaka and with us from Auckland is Peter Bale. Peter, great to see you. Bernard,
1: Bernard how are you, you handsome devil? I, I think you're essentially imprisoned uh, or at least security seems to have been taken over by a bunch of uh, anti-vax nutters down there.
0: Yeah, well, I'm in a very padded uh, cell, a um, studio inside the bowels of Parliament in the mm. press gallery. And so we can't hear the chanting and the shouting from outside or more likely the yoga instruction, which 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 the um, the protest has moved to. Over the last week, the protests have gone from death threats for everyone to love and peace to everyone, at least. Cool. Before. So does that mean that the Hare Krishna have taken over? Yes, there's been lots of um, ching, 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 you know, mm. and Hare Krishna are around. Um there is a bit of a festival atmosphere outside. There has been an awful lot of uh, um, temporary uh, structures put up for cooking and all sorts of things. But I have to say, and you can't—this uh, is hard to do over a webinar—but it smells. It yeah, smells interesting that uh, because
1: because somebody said to me today it doesn't smell at all, and I'm going to, you're going to be amused when I when I tell you who that was. So why don't we tell everybody what we're going to do today? Give them a bit of a rundown before we get into the protest. Is that all right? Yes. I mean, not, to, um, not to tell you how
0: to run your own your own, um, no, own show about Yeah, yeah, no, this is um, this is fantastic because we've got an hour uh, again and a special guest. We've got Robert Patman, Professor Robert Patman from Otago University, who's an international relations expert, because it's all kicking off in Ukraine, and we thought we'd uh, have a chat to someone who thinks about these things in a global sense and how New Zealand fits into the um, equation. Because although we're a lot, we're about as far away as anyone can get. Yeah, uh, although
1: there's there's a grave risk in having someone who actually knows what they're talking about, so that I just can't talk off the top of my head as usual. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely concerned, I'm extremely concerned about bringing an academic who may actually know what he's talking about.
0: Yeah, no, it'll be great. He's really looking forward to it. He'll be on between four fifteen and four thirty. We're obviously going to talk about the protests and uh, what's going on there, and uh, and all the other things that are cracking around at the moment uh, with. Um, the economy, interest rates, uh, inflation, uh, and what's happening with housing, and, um, and talk about some of the things we've talked about this week. But um,
1: Good, and um, I have a truly fantastic um, uh, skateboarding dog story for the end, which involves our favourite other subject, gin. Gin,
0: Ah, oh, great. Now, yeah, I, I yeah, really, yeah. I'm really missing my gin and tonic today because I'm in Parliament and you're not allowed to just swan around tons of tonic. Well, I
1: was very surpri- I'm very surprised you don't have it in a little thermos and, and that Nicola Willis hasn't come back since, you know, you, I, I thought you having a little G&T with Nicola, Nicola Willis was a rather adorable little yeah, thing last yeah. week. No, we
0: had a really, really good conversation um, and that's been very popular. Um, more than 1,500 downloads of that... Uh, that discussion last week, and um, oh, so can 10, we get 000. David
1: Seymour then next so that I can be rude to him? What did I describe him as the other day that somebody got shitty with me about? That described I can not remember what I used, but I did. I did describe Chris Cuomo from um, CNN this week as a an overpromoted bobblehead, which. Um, which got some good responses as well, but <laughs> maybe, maybe actually David Seymour does look as though his head would come off if you shook it too, if you shook it too much. Not to sound too much yes. like one of the protesters, of course. No,
0: no. Well, after oh that, vestigial tail, that's right. It was that. <laughs> thank you very much, Mr. Anderson. Yeah. Um, after this uh, episode, you must Google um, David Seymour and Dancing with the Stars. You. Oh no, uh, please safe, not. <laughs> You were safely in London when he did this, but it yes. actually probably is the reason he's as successful as he is because. Um, he sort of became the sort of uh, dweeb who everyone came to um, quite like in the end. And yeah, long live
1: up. dweebs. I'm very big on dweebs and nerds. But I, I think the reason he's successful is because he has got a very cute little Lotus Super 7 car. Uh, well, well it might that, be a Caterham, actually, which is a, which is a copy of the Lotus. But anyway, I can so he I has go been on slightly, about it some he, weeks.
0: he has been slightly busy this week in that, uh, like a lot of the other politicians, they've been trying not to talk to the protesters. Mm. He had the little dalliance uh, on the side, a private meeting with some people from the protest. But in the end, the... Well, polit- he, shagged,
1: he shagged somebody from the protest, did you say? No, no, no,
0: <laughs> as in, Was it, as was you it the overperson? Down have it? a chat with them. I oh, think. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so um, the politicians have been uh, pretty staunch about not talking to the protesters this week, but it's becoming pretty painful for everyone because uh, they're locked in now. They've got. Yeah. The now, may them. I ask
1: you a couple of questions about this burner? Because I suddenly had a slight. I mean, you had a you had a bit of a burst gasket and a bit of a rantogram last week, which even somebody we know who's close to me said, "God, burner's gone off on one this week." And so, you know, I, I, and we discussed. I think it's unwise for you to go off on one too often. However, what the hell is this guy Costa doing today, saying that the police are going to make no interventions at all because it would be worse than the protest itself? You know, there are cars parked in front of the emergency exits there. The beehive, it's gonna take a year for all of that grass to be fixed up once once these buggers eventually go. What what's actually going on there? And also, is Trevor Mallard as big a plonker as he appears? These <laughs> well, these and other what, questions need to be answered.
0: Yeah, well, this this time last week, Trevor Mallard was firing up the sprinklers and getting his worst mixtape out to play all weekend for uh, all mm. the protesters. Unfortunately. That backfired because they started dancing to the mixtape and um, it became a sort of uh, cause celebre with uh, uh, James Blunt uh, putting his Mm. hand up and said he would help. Um, So that backfired a little. And uh, he also said some slightly rude things in an interview with Audrey Young in the New Zealand Herald, which upset a few people. Uh, And you're right, uh, Andrew Costa, the police um, chief, has come out today and said that uh, he's not planning to do much. That is not what Wellingtonians want. So over the last week, the anger amongst the usually pretty quiet um, bureaucrats and people of Wellington has really started to build because this protest has locked off basically the bottom of town. So not only have they occupied the uh, grass around the front of parliament, but there's about four or five side roads that are now completely blocked off. Yeah. With parked cars and utes, and that, that shut down our main bus exchange.
1: Don't tell me they've got double cab utes, these people, they're oh, finished.
0: Yes, yes, no, and double cab utes. And the most favored vehicle is these really old 20 to 30 year old diesel SUVs that yeah. are from cool. Japan. The Isuzu Bighorn. Mm. Well-named the for these people, yes. Exactly. And um, these are the ones where they turn haul. them yeah. on and then there's a cloud of black diesel smoke. That, Excellent. That's yeah. Well, in, in the US,
1: of course, they call that coal rolling when you have a, a particular switch on your on your, SUV, on your uh, pickup truck to pump smoke out, usually in front of a Prius dealership. Now, <laughs> but Bernard, what, what, what exactly is the story with the Sky Costa thing? Because mm. I, I am quite shocked by that response. I do understand it from a sort of public safety point of view. But the police really do seem to have been um, operating with both hands tied behind their backs, really, in this.
0: Yeah, and it's right from the side. By themselves. So, They've handcuffed yes. themselves. Yeah. So last Tuesday, there were no police about in the initial protest. And I think it was a mistake that not only was there not much presence to uh, deter some of the uh, nastiest behaviour that went on early in the protest, but also the setting up of tents and these various structures for cooking and cleaning mm. and there's showers and the whole thing. That is not allowed. You're not supposed to do that. It's against the law. It's trespassing. This is not normal protest. This is not turning up and shaking a sign and, and shouting and then going away. This is, this is full-on Trespass. It's an occupation. Yeah,
1: and but also uh, the, the the control of the area now. It would appear these these sort of pseudo security guards.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty grumpy. A, I've been parked outside Parliament and got a ticket, and I have been towed away from around.
1: Not <laughs> <laughs> well, personally, not not your vehicle, just you. Yeah, no, the, now you, I'm really huge off tow because... truck came along, picked you up by the trousers yeah, by the trousers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, by the belt loops.
0: I've been towed away, I've yeah. been ticketed, and they haven't. So that's not fair.
1: Now, Bernard, I, um, I had an interesting inter- interchange with somebody from this, a reader from the spinoff yesterday of my thing, who accused me of being essentially a right-wing stooge um, uh, and, and a warmonger for what I was saying about Putin. But today, helpfully, he sent me a very large piece by a certain Cameron Slater, who said he had um, flown down an aircraft, um, flown down a private aircraft to Wellington to see what was going on? Said there was no smell. There was excellent behaviour. Uh, everybody was the politicians and the media were lying to everybody. That they, these were just a bunch of reasonable and good thinking Kiwi Kiwi people. Um, they certainly didn't have what Mark Daulder told me about the other day, which was uh, graffiti on their cars, uh, talking about Jew cinder. You know. Well, so is Cameron yeah. is Cameron right, or are these other? Are there other media people hyping it? You know, Cameron Slater, as we know, is always extremely accurate and, um, and uh, you know, has, has a moderate perspective on these things.
0: Short answer, no. Um, <clears throat> he is a, uh, uh, a liar in the eyes of various high court judges over the years and um, has no right being anywhere near a public stage and uh, if he's paying money for a private plane, he should be paying money to the various people. Well, it was one of his wealthy,
1: planet. one of his wealthy mates apparently. But you know, he, he's basically saying that everything is fine there. Now, the other person who seems to be getting in on the act is, is Russell Crowe, the actor from uh, from Gladiator. But I think actually, maybe right. I mean Russell Coots. Ah, Russell you know, coots the other yeah. the other famous New Zealand Russell, apart yes, from so, Russell up in the Bay of Islands. Yes. So, so what Russell, the hell is Russell Coots doing here? He's he's a he's he's working out new ways to make most most unpopular man in New Zealand less popular.
0: Exactly. Um, he's very upset with the um, restrictions on movement. He's one of the um, global elite flying back and mm. forth in various places, uh, hanging out with the rich and famous in Switzerland and every other fancy place. Uh, he doesn't need to work anymore because he's taken lots of money from various... Take, campaigns. Taken Bertolelli's shilling. Well, there's that, plus also the various government subsidies that have gone to all sorts of New Zealand yachting uh, teams mm. over the years. And uh, I'd have to have to say he's not the most popular New Zealander ever. And for him to say that um, his freedoms are being infringed um, by the mandates and, uh, and vaccines is, um, uh, I suspect, more to do with his inability to be able to fly around the world at will than anything else. Um, but he's kind of come down and he's going kind to of discover that the um, fellow travellers he's jumping in line with are not the normal people <laughs> That he's normal, yeah, but Bernard, normal is it, so, so is it Cameron, him.
1: Cameron Slater, and various other people, including Barry Soper, say that there are no neo-Nazis to be to be found. That they've gone to try and find the neo-Nazis, walking around, presumably amongst those people, saying, "Here, neo-Nazi! Here, here, Radolf. And they haven't been able to find them. Now, no, is, well, is that? I've but seen and yet, and and yet I've and seen people and, like Mark Dalder are getting abused, attacked. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe Mark hasn't been attacked yet, but he, you know, the. Thing that he said yesterday on the detail about uh, them asking for him by name. And we kind of know what that means really with Mark. Um, you know, he's one well, of the best reporters around.
0: Exactly. I mean, I, uh, just for those people who don't know the background here, uh, I hired Mark Golder as a student um, out of Salient, the student magazine at, in Wellington uh, in 2018. Uh, firstly, part-time and then I uh, fought to make him full-time at, at Newsroom and uh and um so uh i um had quite a bit to do with mark and he's a fantastic reporter and has worked um very hard And, and i've seen over the years because of his coverage of the extreme right movement in new zealand the sorts of personal dangerous um worrying threats that he and others in and around his family have received and it is truly ugly and they're the same people who have been involved in this uh, in this project uh i professor like to... here. yes Hi, professor petman welcome in great oh, to see call you me, how home. are you doing Robert, I'm, I'm
1: extremely concerned about having someone who actually knows what they're talking about come on this podcast, though, because <laughs> no. No, normally I can I can talk complete bollocks at re- great length for about any international well, event. Don't worry, but,
2: uh, Peter, lots of people accuse me of that, of that on a daily basis. <laughs> e-
1: excellent. And and I see you're also the sesquic- sesquicentennial distinguished chair.
2: Yes, it's virtually, uh, virtually unpronounceable. unpronounceable but never mind. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually kind of pleased I more or less did that. All right. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's... Uh, Really warm day here. We're about 26 degrees, so,
0: yeah. Wow. Um, Now, obviously, we've got you on the show to talk about uh, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, and we'll be very um, sure to put this uh, recording out quickly before the news goes off, because so much is happening at the moment. It is. Uh, Professor Patman, can you give us the the latest from what you've seen about where we are in this process and what could happen over the next couple of of days?
2: Well, what we know is that... um, Russia has engaged in the biggest military buildup in Europe in the post-Cold War period. And we don't just have to rely on US and NATO spy satellites for this information. Uh, independent commercial satellites, like Maxar, are able to confirm exactly this. So there's the evidence is beyond dispute. Um, what Mr Putin is proposing to do with this force on the borders of ukraine of course he vehemently denies that he will invade the country um but he has made a series of demands which cannot be easily resolved by diplomacy which of course then triggers the question what next so we have seen
0: we've seen some situation. exchanges of uh, shelling in the last couple of days yeah these are regular things but the the Russians and various um, arms of uh, the Russian media have been uh, focused on this and saying this is provocative. And, and uh, the phrase, um, the, the, the military technical response was slightly, yeah. slightly yeah. ominous from the defense ministry. Mm. Could you tell us about you know, this idea of a false flag um, incident and, and whether it's uh, enough of a fig leaf for, for Putin to actually do something?
2: Yes. um, Let's be quite clear about this. If Russia does invade, uh, this is to according to one military critic within Russia of Putin, a senior retired military official, it will not be a walk in the park for Russian forces in the Ukraine. So he probably needs a justification. And um, a false flag operation essentially is if you like, uh, a manufactured crisis, which the initiator of that manufactured crisis then says they have to respond to. And so what we've had in the last four or five hours, maybe a bit longer than that, was that the Russians who are deeply, we should say, you know, first of all, the Russians annexed Crimea in 2014. And since 2014, they've also been involved in eastern Ukraine and they've been supporting uh, Ru- um, Russian-speaking for- separatist forces in eastern Ukraine. Now, we've heard in the last few hours of an incident in which the Russian armed separatists in Eastern Ukraine shelled um, positions held by the uh, Ukrainian government. And um, the Biden administration and others believe that could be the prelude to further military action, perhaps an invasion. But the Biden administration has been warning for some time and so has the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, that they expected that the prelude to an invasion would be what they call a false flag operation, mm. a manufactured incident in which Putin then believes he's got the necessary fig leaf. He's is re- requiring to say, "Look, we have had no choice; we had to send in the troops."
1: Robert, let me ask you two, two aspects of that if I may, because um, this is a this is a story an area that I, I I follow a lot as well. And of course, we've also had this this uh, evident evidence strike on a on a kindergarten um, in the Russian Russian area of. Uh, in the Donbass, um, which is, you know, classic false flag. You, you mentioned the, the level of intelligence that's available to us now through um, satellite mm. and so on. One of the tactics this time from the Americans and from NATO seems to have been to release an extraordinary amount of, of um, what, it, it is evidently quite accurate information yeah. very, very quickly, which presumably has the, has the effect of slightly unsettling Moscow given the, you know, the, the it, they've obviously got very good intelligence on the ground Perhaps uh, for the first time in a long time, they've got decent intelligence coming out of Moscow itself. But this—it's a very sort of—it's—it's like um, countering a lack of transparency on Putin's behalf with extreme transparency of the intelligence. Like it's going to be at four o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, and we expect a false flag, and there's going to be a video. It's—it's quite an interesting shift in tactics, isn't it?
2: It is, and uh, I think it's caused some uh, grinding of teeth in the intelligence community because Mm. they always worry that if you publicize your intelligence, you may compromise your sources. But I think in this occasion, the administration believes uh, that there is a great advantage in shedding light on something in which Mr. Putin might want to prefer to present the world with a fait accompli. If they Mm. can preempt that possibility, uh, shedding light on Mr. And he and the American constant warnings, not just the Americans, but the UK as well, their intelligence uh, and nato intelligence are appalling they're exchanging intelligence and reaching mm. some pretty dire conclusions but the publication of it i think uh, serves two purposes firstly it, it is putting mr putin a little bit on the defensive and secondly it's actually triggering it's cutting through putin's narrative that nato aggression has caused the Ukraine crisis, which many Russians have been fed on a diet for for a long time. Mm. Now, we saw some very interesting developments in the last few days, whereby senior military Russian sources admittedly retired, we should point out that serving Russian military officers cannot comment on political matters, retired Russian military personnel can. Mm -hmm. And we've had two retired to senior people um, in Russia um, basically warned Putin that an invasion of Ukraine would be an utter disaster. Now, without getting into the details of the warnings, what I find interesting is I think these constant warnings by the, the Americans and the UK and other Western leaders has, in a sense, served notice um, to the Russian public that they can't simply rely on the narrative that NATO yes, has spoken in yes. this crisis. It is, it is a and very it interesting And may be opening comment. up a debate, which, of course, is the whole intention. They want to get the Russian public alerted to uh, what they see as a tragedy which could unfold. How interesting. What, one of the
1: one of the scenarios that, that um, I've posited on this show and, and other things I've written is, is the idea that they might connect a land bridge, that, that a limited war, a limited conflict, if you like, pushing through the Donbass and down to mm. Crimea through uh, Mariupol, the naval base, would be not exactly acceptable, but would be a sliver that would deliver... Connection to connection to Crimea would unify unify that eastern side of the Donbass, the Russian areas of the Russian-held areas of the of the Donbass, and would be not so significant as an attack on on Kiev to generate um, you know complete Western Western response. What do you I think about it's
2: that? Uh, you know I think that's a very fair interpretation. It's one I'm sort of leaning towards as well. But big questions would have to be asked, does Mr Putin need the military capability he now has? I mean, they've got they're still constructing field hospitals, Mm. according to Western sources. And when I say field hospitals and also engineering units are active on the borders at various places with Ukraine. Uh, If it was a low level strengthening of the insurgency, it's difficult to see how they would need that that very big mobilized force. But it may be an improvisation by Putin in the response, in reaction to the fact that the West are not prepared to sit on the intelligence they've got, they're going to publicise it, and he may feel um, given, he's obviously aware of growing criticism within Russia. Now, this is an authoritarian regime, so that probably won't keep him up Mm -hmm. at night, but it's an interesting situation, and I've always felt that domestic considerations were very influential in the fact that Mr. Putin has made these almost outlandish demands, um, which have big implications not just for Ukraine but for many countries in the world, including yeah, our own.
1: On, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, you've, there is an argument uh, which we canvassed a couple of weeks ago, and that great Churchill quote about, "In in in victory, show magnanimity." Um, George Bush, George H. W. Bush, did not do that, um, and now you have these rather remarkable anti-missile defence um establishments in Romania and, and Poland, you know that is push you know is is there an argument that NATO did push right up right up to the border? I mean I, I'm also well aware of having lived in Romania that Romania was begging to join to join yes. um, NATO as was Poland and most of the Baltics. but yeah, I, um, I
2: think actually there's two aspects to that that first of all, that the Bush administration had promised not to expand eastwards um, after the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's nothing written down on that. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, and this is something I think needs to be hit head on. NATO hasn't expanded Mm. because Washington wanted it. In fact, if anything, Washington was rather coerced into it by the fact that Washington has large numbers of people with Eastern European links and the Mm. Eastern European Mm. countries. You mentioned Romania, Poland, uh, a, a crucial development in them, them wanting NATO membership was the storming of the Russian Parliament in 1993, Absolutely. which reminded them there were still forces around, of which Mr Putin appear, appears to be quite sympathetic, which would like the, the, the perks that the Soviet Union used to have of a sphere of influence in mm. Eastern Europe. This is what it's all about, really. It's not just about the Ukraine. You see, Mr Putin believe, sees international relations as a great power game. It's a sort of 19th century view of international politics, which doesn't sit comfortably with us in New Zealand. But it it is a view that both the Chinese and to a greater extent, I think Mr. Putin has. And um, we have got a clash of worldviews on display here. I think Mr. Putin, notice he's, every time he talks about a diplomatic solution, it involves Washington. He's not sitting down and talking to the Ukrainian leaders. No, no. Or or the, the leaders of Poland or... Bulgaria or Romania, he's just making these demands that they that, first of all, Ukraine must never be allowed to exercise um, its sovereignty when it comes to security Mm. choices. And secondly, he's demanding that those countries which join NATO um, since the end of the Cold War must effectively dismantle uh, their military infrastructure as uh, associated with being members of NATO. So there's no way that's going to be accepted by I mean, we wouldn't accept a master-servant relationship with China. We couldn't expect Ukraine to either. So, uh, there, you know, I think one of the claims that Mr. Putin has consistently made is it's NATO aggression that's caused this, and that's based on the assumption that Washington has almost twisted the arm of Eastern mm, European countries. To join, it. And that's just not true, mm. and it's factually incorrect.
0: So, Robert, um, how does New Zealand um, fit into this in terms of whether it changes the, uh, the game, if you like, between America and China, which is uh, the, the, the part of the world where we are stuck, if you like, and where our mm. interests um, lie immediately. What's at stake for us here?
2: Well, we pride ourselves, um, Bernard, on our independent foreign policy. And uh, we do believe, as a small state, that countries do have the right to make choices in the area of their security arrangements. So uh, we also, a key part of our independent foreign policy is a non-nuclear security policy. Now, this is where it becomes quite poignant because Ukraine in December 1994 gave up its nuclear weapons in return for a cast iron Russian uh, international agreement, which it signed, that it would respect Ukraine's sovereignty and its territorial integrity, an agreement which they subsequently violated. So how does this fit to New Zealand? Well, for New Zealand, we just critically depend, as a relatively small player, on an international rules-based environment. And what we're witnessing here is an attempt to rewrite the rules mm. using raw power. So Indeed. we don't have an interest in an international free-for-all in which might is right. So we have a lot at stake here.
0: So if, you know, Russia gets away with it, so to speak, um, do you think that emboldens China to maybe have a crack at Taiwan?
2: It might do, Um, although the Chinese are cautious in their relations with Russia. I've seen a lot of commentary recently Mm -hmm. saying... Oh,
1: my God.
2: (laughs) I've seen a lot of commentary recently, you know, saying that um, the Western response to uh, Russian ambitions in relation to Ukraine has pushed China and Russia together. Uh, I think China is quite cautious. It hasn't actually it, in 2014. It supported what it called the territorial integrity of Ukraine, which was a bit of a sly dig at uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea. Uh, both Russia and China share something in common. They do not like the prospect of an American dominated world. Mm-hmm. So they have a tactical arrangement. But, you know, China Is not going to be on, it's not going to have a sort of relationship of equality with Russia. China's deeply conscious that it's genuinely a superpower. Russia's got an economy which is smaller than Italy's. And Mr. Putin's good at playing a weak hand very cleverly. But the Russia, but the American, you know, the Chinese, uh, you know, they they, um, see through such maneuvers. And I, th- I think they're quite happy to cooperate with Russia. But I think it's something of a marriage of convenience. Interesting. I don't so think we it's shouldn't necessarily, you know, a coalition against the rest of the world. After all, the Chinese leadership are critically dependent for their political legitimacy on access to the world capitalist market, which has given mm. them superpower status.
1: Yeah. And Robert, so we shouldn't read too much into that joint statement from Putin and Xi last week. Um, just uh, uh, around the opening of the of the Olympic Games, where they talked about um, you know China endorsing Russia's Russia's concerns about its security and so on, it's, it's not forming a new kind of axis between the two of them.
2: I don't think so because I think China's economic growth continues to depend on th- three, perhaps four crucial markets. Um, firstly, the United States, the EU, the biggest single. The most prosperous single market in the world, and also Japan. Yeah, and I, I think Chinese decision makers know they share certain things in quality in common with Mr. Putin. They are very worried about the you know the 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 challenges that technology presents for their ability to control things at home. These are both authoritarian regimes, and they will on occasion express so- authoritarian solidarity mm. with each other. They both see cooperation with the Western world as potentially subversive. Um, But I don't, I I think the Chinese have a different attitude um, towards the United States than the Russians do. And in a sense, I think China um, uh, has had a history of difficult relations with Russia. Yes. And I I don't think that's gone away. I, I think that at the moment they're expressing some solidarity with um, Russia, but you know, at the moment, nothing has actually happened. They've mobilized on the borders. And I don't think China will want to be seen as effectively undermining the territorial integrity or being complicit in the undermining of the territorial integrity of the Ukraine. Because after all, uh, one of its crucial justifications for its policy towards Hong Kong and Taiwan is its sovereign right to act in that situation. Mm. Mm. So I think they'd be quite cautious in that area. I mean, after all, they claim that both Taiwan and they certainly, and they've got international recognition with recognition within um, uh, Hong Kong, that, that that's part of China. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, a tactical arrangement. I would not see it as a new... Um, if you like um, uh, deep-seated strategic alliance, I think the United States could unpick the relationship between China and Russia over time with creative diplomacy. Yeah, there's, there's a lot a, that separates them.
1: Robert, there's a very good question. I well, forgive me. I think it's a good from from uh, Jane to it to well, Jaime to other people, which is that whether. You think this is all about testing the Biden administration, both, both perhaps on the Xi side, but certainly on the Putin side, because hasn't Putin actually just succeeded already in one level? Is that we are all talking with him, to him, about
2: him? He's he's pulled the agenda very strongly back to him. I'm sure there's an element of that. I think both China and Russia miscalculate in assessing United States. Biden administration was not the reason that the United States lost in Afghanistan. They'd been losing since 2003. It was Mr. Trump who finalized the defeat and made arrangements to leave. Mr. Biden inherited that and carried it out. Um, The problem is for both China and Russia is that they tend to underestimate um, middle powers in politics and small powers And what is striking about the current crisis is the the number of countries which are now supporting, Eastern European countries, Mm. which are supporting the Ukraine, either on a bilateral basis or on the basis of being a NATO member. Um, And the other thing here is that Mr. Putin has succeeded in unifying NATO, which Mm. is quite an achievement. So, you know, to simply look at the United States, a great power, the most powerful country in the world, and then make key strategic decisions, to me, seems out of sync in a world where great powers can't run the world. I mean, most of the problems we face now do not respect borders, whether it be COVID-19, whether it be climate change, whether it be the intricacies of the global economy. They can't, economic problems or transnational terrorism can't be fixed by one power acting unilaterally. And the other disquieting thing for great powers If you think about the last three, four decades of the post-Cold War era, there's been very few examples of a great power acting unilaterally. Yeah. So I think what I think Mr. Putin's made a major miscalculation. Uh, I think he's underestimated the resilience of not just the United States, but the uh, middle powers and the smaller powers. Yeah. On the other, on the other hand, Robert, as
1: um, Margarita Simonian, the editor of um, Russia Today, says, the boss never works to someone else's timetable. We showed to Mr we, Putin. We, yeah, we showed everyone what we wanted to show. So I, I don't know. I think I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure you're right that he's, that he's, he's certainly. Uh, the Economist cover this week is him having painted himself into a corner. But let's imagine, let's let's also look at two aspects of this, please. The the energy aspect. It's going to take, I think, another five years for the pipeline mm-hmm. to, to China to be um to you know to be to be built. Uh, Germany is very dependent on, on, on Russia, but Russia's also rather dependent economically on uh, gas going going into Europe as well. how how's that gonna play out, do you think the sort of the the energy aspect of that? The Well, economic- like, as
2: I understand it, um, the Americans has been in touch with uh, some of the Gulf states looking mm. at alternative arrangements for some of the countries which will be affected. But you've pinpointed, uh, 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 you know, if you like, a vulnerability for some of the West European countries, particularly Germany uh, with the Nord Stream development. However, I mean, I don't think economic self-interest, I mean, we, if to use a parallel, when we had a disagreement in this country with China over Huawei, there were voices in this country which said, oh, look, we've got to go to Beijing and apologize. We just simply need the business. Uh, but I think the majority view was that no, because the consequence of, of acting in that way and simply being enslaved to our economic interests will set up an unequal relationship with China, which we don't want. And I think many Europeans, particularly the Germans, um, are very. Co- I mean, after all, they've been at the sharp end of Russian interference for the last mm. few years, um, Russian support for alternative poor Deutschland, that neo-Nazi group. Mm-hmm. Um, the British are aware, although the Bronson government doesn't like to come clean about it too much, about some of the oligarchs who are closely associated with Mr Putin being very active in British politics the Conservative Party receiving more than $3 in donations Mm. from Russian Russian oligarchs since 2010. So the Russians have been quite active. And I think, on balance, um, politics is often a choice between the disagreeable and the intolerable. I think that Mr Putin will not succeed in blackmailing the Western European countries into accepting um, his formula, which is a buffer state for the Ukraine and possibly a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. I, I think that's not going to fly.
0: So, Robert, what might be the domestic implications for Putin if if um, militarily it goes OK? And there's a risk, of course, with a lot of the um, these new anti-tank missiles which seem to um, take out the, the Russian tanks, that it doesn't go well. But let's say they do get Ukraine. Uh, what problem has he solved domestically?
2: Well, he's let's be quite clear, he's feeling quite insecure. He's been in power 22 years as president or prime minister, and the economy remains underperforming overall. But the people around him, of course, have accumulated enormous wealth, and corruption is a big problem in Russia. Um, A lot of Russians are not doing well, and there have been signs of disconsent. uh, Alexei Navalny, who he tried, or Mm -hmm. people... We, can, we, can, we can assume that
1: he tried to poison him. yes, I think.
2: Yeah. Yep. Um, and he was arrested as soon as he got back to um, Russia. He, of course, uh, while, Mr. while all this talk has been going on about will Russia invade um, Ukraine, uh, Mr Navalny is now facing new court proceedings, mm-hmm. which could sentence into a further 15 years. So the Putin regime is very insecure. And we should have no illusions about people who try to oppose Mr. Putin. They usually end up in a very unhappy state. And so I feel um, that he's coming under pressure and uh, he certainly, uh, he's acting in a way, you know, he needs, if you like, as one military critic said, he's looking for a nationalist diversion. Yeah, he needs- which,
1: which he achieved in che- Chechnya when he, you know, when talking about yes. false flag arguments, I mean, we, you, we both know and uh, we've discussed before for the apartment, the blowing up of apartments in Russian cities in order to provoke the second Chechen war. If you can do that as a false flag operation, you can do anything.
2: Yeah, well, he, he operates with a degree of ruthlessness that mm. I think many people in the West don't fully understand. Um, not just with fellow, you know, against effective rivals or perceived effective opposition politicians, but also against journalists and people. Mm. who could cause problems for him. But that strength is also his weakness. It means after 22 years in effective power, there's not many people around him who are going to give him un- the unvarnished truth. So he mm. may be living in a bit of a bubble. Whereby, probably, just as,
1: probably just as well they're having to do it from a 50-foot-long table as well.
2: Well, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, um, it may be that he's not getting, if you like, evidence based independent information because the people delivering it may not particularly want to be in the position where they incur his anger. Um, so there is the possible the possibility that he has. And this is this has been the charges, by the way, from his military critics, completely underestimated the hostility towards Russia in Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, some of his military critics are talking about Ukraine as being a possible Vietnam scenario. So this is very interesting. Uh, I suppose, from his point of view, he needs this success. I mean, I, I don't think he would be making these outlandish demands unless he felt he had a genuine chance of pulling it off and also that he believed it would help consolidate himself uh, he's still consolidating power after 22 years in the Kremlin. Well,
1: I, I think um, we better have yeah. you back. I think I so I'm, I'm going to force you to make a prediction. or see whether you agree with my prediction that Putin will in fact invade on that on that um, eastern border, connect up the Crimea, and then say, "I've got enough. I've got what I wanted. I now have my buffer, and also come and get me with your with your sanctions." And that then there will be over the next week or so some real um, ructions in Europe about just how harsh those sanctions can be when it's only a little, uh, only a little sliver of Eastern Ukraine.
2: Well, yes, he he could, he could possibly do that. Um, But remember, he is struggling economically with the territory he now has. If he wants to take more, let's be quite clear about this, the sanctions he faced after the Crimea devastated the Russian economy for two years. Mm. Um, Russia's economy stopped growing for two years. It's resumed growth in late 2016, but it actually contracted by about 2.3 percent mm. in in 2015. So uh, he he will be wary of that. What he has done, he's built up a war chest of international um, reserves. Yeah, 630 billion dollars. Yeah, which is a lot of money. Mm. Um, but if you've got a poor performing economy which is totally dependent on fossil, the export of fossil fuels, um, and he, he and unspecified sanctions are taken, which the the administration seems to believe will really hurt the Russian economy, then it it won't be a cost-free exercise for Mr. Putin. But perhaps from his point of view, he believes the worst risk is not to take any risk at all.
0: Just finally, um, uh, Robert, uh, we've got a question here about whether or not this could go nuclear, because... Some people have described it as the biggest threat to you know, Europe since the Cold War. Could it get that bad?
2: Very difficult to say, isn't it? The Americans have made it quite clear they will not be sending soldiers to fight in the Ukraine because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. But I think they, they are certainly helping Ukraine in terms of military assistance. And the um, Eastern European countries are also on a bilateral basis helping Ukraine. Ukraine is much better equipped in 2022 and a much more efficient military than it had in 2014. And uh, one thing we know is that wars never go according to plan. <laughs> and um, you know, I wouldn't under the fact that military people in Russia, admittedly senior people who may mm-hmm. be out of the loop now, are making really serious warnings about how difficult it will be, uh, indicates that stakes are very high. Um, but I think Peter's interpretation um is, is a pretty good one. I think that may be Mr. Putin's, it may not be plan A. He may want the whole of Ukraine, but plan B may be taking a sliver of it.
1: Excellent. I'll take that as permission to talk total bollocks about this for the foreseeable future.
0: (laughs) Robert, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to have you on. And I completely agree with um, some of our uh, uh, attendees here. We've got over 100 here. That they've learned more on this topic in the last 30 minutes than in the last uh, few years. So I really appreciate that Other you. than from
1: our excellent excellent podcast, Bernard.
0: Oh, yeah. No, but it's always good to have the experts <laughs> on. It's fantastic. So thank you very much, Robert. And uh, Thanks, Bernard. Thanks, thanks Peter. We'll, we'll thank have, you, Robert. We'll have you on again. Cheers.
2: Okay. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.
0: Oh, that was that was great, Peter. Um, and, well, no.
2: Rick, so, so now
1: that I can continue, before I was so rudely inter, inter, interrupted <laughs> by somebody who actually knows what they're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was really good. And um, you've got a particular affinity with uh, Eastern Europe, having served there as an uh, as a as the correspondent for Reuters in Romania at the end of the Cold War. Yeah, and just after, um, yeah. yeah, the points made by um, Robert about how. Unpopular, <laughs> the Russians are in large chunks of Eastern Europe, because of what happened uh, after the war.
1: Yeah, I think we. I think it's not easy. It's 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 it is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, Poland particularly. Poland particularly. Um, Ukraine, less so in a sense, because they've been brotherly nations. But of course, you know, Stalin inflicted a, a man-made famine on the place that they still haven't, still haven't forgotten, describe as a Ukrainian Holocaust. Yeah, they're, they're not easy, they're not easy neighbours to have. I was really struck today, Bernard. Just and, I, and I'll and I'll slip this in here. Um, you know, as a as a as a pseudo um, historian rather than a real historian like uh, like Robert. There's a wonderful, um, and I think I might even have mentioned it before, a wonderful diplomat called George F. Cannon who was for about 60 years in the United States probably the most important diplomat advising all of the presidents from the 1930s right through to the 1990s and early 2000s before he died particularly about Russia and he wrote a thing um, uh, as as the um, uh, and for, about post-war Soviet Union called the long telegram and it formed the basis of what we what we um, Ended up calling containment, which was the whole idea that Russia was the Soviet Union, either was it was a a, a a negligent force that needed to be contained. And uh, there's a very good piece in tomorrow's if, tomorrow's Financial Times about this, or uh, which explains how how much that telegram can reflect on the existing circumstances, and that point that Robert was making about the way Putin sees. Um, Russia sees its right, in a sense, to a sphere of influence. And of course, he has described the collapse of the Soviet Union as the um, a, a, as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. But what, what Kennan said in his col- in his um, telegram was that that Soviet Union, as was then, sees the outside world as bearing within itself germs of creeping disease and destined to be racked with growing internal convulsions. And this is one of the reasons um, you know, Putin pushes this whole idea about Western liberalism being at end, you know, the um, sexual freedom, homosexuality, all sorts of things, um, and warned that Russia would stimulate all forms of disunity in the West. And this is what Putin lives on chaos. And, and as Kenan said, remember, this was in the 19, early 1940s. He said this poor will be set against the rich, black against white. Young against old, newcomers against established residents, and of course, that's exactly what we saw with the whole uh, Russian disinformation in the US election. So, you know, history is a good guide to these things.
0: Yeah, uh, and yes, I, I do I, mean
1: tomorrow's FT, Joe. It's um, yeah. it's it is, it's 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 been. I mean, well, as usual, we're we're Bernard and I are at least twenty four oh. hours ahead of the entire
0: world, as you know. We're always setting the agenda. <laughs> now, that's, um, uh, I, I find this stuff interesting. you may, Those who've who come on the... Um... Nobody said it's boring this time, did they? Bastards. Oh, no, 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 no. But, I mean, it's a long way away, and, and and a lot of people might say, well, it's not nearly as interesting as the protests or interest what? rates or house prices. <laughs> but um, for those who are interested in history and also how the, the world is deeply interconnected... I'd recommend a fantastic uh, biography of Joseph Stalin. Which one? Uh, I've, uh, I've read them all, Bernard. Which yeah, one? Yeah, no, the, the one by Simon Simon um, Sebag Montefiore. Simon Sebag Montefiore to get yep. a deep sense of how um, not just ruthless but paranoid and dysfunctional. Yep. Yet. Somehow successful um, the Soviet Union became. Uh, it, it's a fascinating place that you know is huge and powerful and rich, but at the same time, um, yeah. And successful. let's and let's remember
1: that for you know forty years we flew Orions all the way around New Zealand waiting for the Russian submarines to turn up, and they never did. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it did have an effect. All of this did have an effect on us.
0: Oh yeah, and we we still have these gun emplacements on Waiheke and various other places. that were Well, that was sea. for the
1: Russians in the nineteen eighty yeah in, yeah, in exactly. 90s yeah, yeah definitely. Did they right. ever turn up? No, no, it no, didn't.
0: Um, and just to um, housing, Bernard,
1: you mentioned you mentioned the famous housing, and isn't
0: housing corrected connected to interest rates? Is that right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely, all the time. Um, and just to throw it forward for next week and to finish off the show. Uh, back where um, we often like to go. Uh, We obviously are going to get the Reserve Bank's decision on Wednesday next week to put up the official cash rate by at least 25 basis points. There's some people thinking it could be the full bazooka of 50 basis points to 1.25%. That, of course, would put up mortgage rates. Uh, And what we're seeing at the moment is the combined effects of these higher mortgage rates, the um, uh, tightening of um, LVR restrictions from the Reserve Bank late last year, and the uh, triple CFA, these rules that make it more difficult to uh, lend money from the banks to people who want to um, spend a lot of money on a house. That um, combined saw news this week from the Real Estate Institute that House prices fell again in January, having fallen in December, and they're now down about 2.7% from their peaks in November nationally. Some places more than that. Uh, Porirua, for example, now down 7% from its peak in October. Mm. And uh, we're seeing from David Clark, the Commerce Minister, moves to... Uh, um, uh, free up some of that that, uh, credit going back into the market, and he repeated that again this week. The interesting point will be whether we get a full 25 or it's just uh, 50 basis points, and also whether the Reserve Bank is seeing any signs yet that the Omicron surge, the uh, red setting, and the continued closure of the borders is affecting the economy. It's... uh,
1: It's, it's, it is amazing how it hasn't so far, but that has, but it has been sort of supported somewhat artificially. I mean, I, I wonder, Bernard, are you, are you uh, gloomy or positive
0: about the economy right now? I'm surprisingly positive. Uh, usually I'm gloomy, but uh, given that I think we're, we're at a moment in the um, Omicron surge where it looks like we can handle it even though we've got 2,000 cases, we've only got one person Mm -hmm. in ICU. And uh, our various measures accidentally on purpose seem to have controlled it or we got lucky. And we're in a position now um, in 10 days' time where we're going to start opening our borders. And uh, we have um, more than 60% having uh, had two vaccinations and a booster. Over 95% have have started having Mm. uh, their vaccines. Scenes. We may be in a position to actually get out of jail um, with yeah. an economy that's growing strongly, without um, having wrecked our uh, health system or um, you know having uh, you know one or two percent of the population so uh, sick or dead that they're not going to be working anymore. And uh, touch, touch wood, we could be flying into the second half of the year with our borders opening up. Oh, right? that's a
1: very, this is a very optimistic, uh, optimistic yeah, yeah. view. Um, just a bit, Bernard, let me let me let me ask a question. So we're looking ahead to our podcast next week. Mm. Uh, is it Tuesday, the Bank of Bank of Bank of uh, Reserve Bank Wednesday? Mm. So and and you said it's the choices between twenty five basis points, a quarter of, quarter basis. of a percentage point, and fifty.
0: What's your bet? I think it'll just be twenty five um, because they're still doing gradualism. Yeah, yeah, and also you know we're still in the red setting and uh, our borders are still closed and uh, i also think that a lot of the work has already been done with those mortgage rates and with the tightening of credit so i think they'll they'll be a little bit cautious about it and also yeah. we still don't know what the us federal reserve is they going to do they don't want to, to snuff it out they don't
1: want to snuff out what's yeah and but yeah. what about what just i don't want to go back to to the protests too much but do you anticipate a um, invasion of an attempt at another attempted at an invasion of parliament by if you know if if they get substantial reinforcements this weekend uh, and some of the unpleasant elements.
0: Yeah, I think the, the tone the has again. changed a bit. It's become more like a place where people are living rather than somewhere mm-hmm. that people have gone to you know, uh, have an attack. Uh, what I think is going to happen now is that the police are going to gradually squeeze the life out of it, try to set up um, various entry and exit points around the protest mm-hmm. and starve it of the sorts of um, you know logistical things that it needs. It mm, might have been
1: helpful oh. to have done that about four or five days ago. If exactly. Not a week ago. And I, yeah.
0: I think Andrew Costa is in trouble. Um, he and the police have underestimated the uh, protest, allowed it to get bedded in, and have not acted um, strongly enough. There's an incredibly... Large number of people people in Wellington who are angry as hell.
1: Yes, I saw the front page of the Dominion today, which is a, yes. is a newspaper that some people may have heard of down there. But I quite like the idea of Mr. Anderson saying there's going to be a demonstration and anti anti protest anti protest protest.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it reminds mean, me of something actually... my
1: father my father used to say. He would just say that there's a category of people called the nogginers because they're not going to do this and they're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is this no. these people are the Didn't anti anti everything for
0: Pardon me. Do you think he voted for Muldoon? Oh,
1: absolutely. He voted for Muldoon <laughs> at one point. Yes, yes, and Bruce Beetham, I believe, at one point. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So um, it's interesting. When I was walking up to Parliament here today, there were a group of people who were anti the protest. They had a big sign out the front saying, "Hey, you know, we took we took the pain of the vaccine, and we want to get on with our lives. You've had your chance. Um, now yeah. move along." And it, I th- I think the police have got to be a little bit careful here. At the moment, they're worried that if they go all um, hairy-chested and um, blue-red squad on the uh, protesters... That yeah, where is Ro- yeah.
1: Ross Morant when we need yeah. him? it's probably, probably actually in there.
0: Well, you know, he used to be an MP as well. Mm, uh, exactly. But, um, he'd,
1: he'd know his way around Parliament.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, so they, they're wary of, you know, uh,
1: provoking some sort of riot. So I, I reckon there's would- going to be a January 6th movement, Bernard. I think there's enough enough dodgy people there to
0: have a go. So be yeah. careful. Yeah, yeah. No, certainly there's been a few people who've tried to rush the police and have been knocked back. But I don't think we're at quite that level of uh, um, febrile atmosphere. But if, if for example, there is an anti-protest movement that comes along and gets yeah. organized, yeah. It could, could, police could, could be might be very a surprised that it's not actually the police who, who provoke some sort of, you know, riot. It might be Wellingtonians who are, pissed off as hell, hmm. actually, A, that the rule of law is not being enforced, and and B, that these guys have outlived their welcome in a big way, and but, the but rest didn't, of us didn't you, also not get on with our lives.
1: Didn't you tweet a, a, a poll today which suggested that a significant percentage of New Zealanders supported them?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting poll. A, it's a little bit self-selecting, and it's a relatively small poll. Uh, and the question uh, was, you know, do you support the protest? Unfortunately, um, you know, it doesn't uh, take into account some of the more extreme elements in there. I, I still think that the government has support from um, the bulk of the population being against the protest. And I think the mood, at least in Wellington, is turning towards let's quietly, if we can, shut this down and move on because. It's starting to become. I mean, it's two weeks now. That's two weeks of the bottom end of our uh, second or third biggest city being locked, l- locked off. This is our national. Well, mind uh,
1: you, there's probably more people in it than have been in Wellington in a single day for about twenty years. <laughs> but Bernard, they're not. They're not all going out to the Golden Mile and 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 shopping at Coles and Stains or, or Vance Vivian, which don't well, exist anymore. Good, now, exactly. um, yeah, now Bernard. Uh, one thing I also also saw today about these protesters or was interested in. So they were initially anti-mandate, supposedly, as that was one of the unifying factors. Now, very interestingly, Keith Lynch from The Stuff has done a piece today, and also Norman Swan, the Australian journalist on ABC's excellent podcast, Coronacast. Which have both been writing this week that mandates under 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 Omicron Omicron are really not really particularly relevant anymore, that they simply don't work and therefore perhaps should be withdrawn, and as several other countries are doing. That might be a tad difficult if we got a one 1 PM announcement withdrawing mandates on Monday.
0: Yeah, I don't think the PM is going to give the protesters that. I think the key element here is the Booster shot, the fourth and the fifth um, shots, and whether or not they become part of the mandate. What I'm hearing from in and around cabinet is that um, this is the way in which you back away slowly from mandates. You say they've got a they've got an end date, and the end date is X, and we're not going to include the booster, and we're not going to include the fourth and the fifth shot. And uh, that's how I think the government will back out of it in a way so that it doesn't look like they've backed down in the face of the protests. But you're absolutely right. And we talked a bit about this uh, last week, I think ahead of the curve a bit, that the irony here is that the anti-mandate people are going to be protesting just at the time when it's becoming clear we don't need the mandates. A, they work It's up over 95% first dose. B, with Omicron, it sort of doesn't matter whether you're vaxxed or not, you're going to pick it up and pass it around. It's often going to stop you from having to go to hospital. But um, the, the very clear argument that you could make about mandates was that it, it stopped um, people who were unvaccinated from spreading it around. Yes, in critical environments, yeah. yeah.
1: Just but, one, one, one nugget that I picked up this week on, on Twitter was was from, from an anti-vax person was uh, that apparently what causes the problem is graphene, which you'll remember as a sort of super a nanomaterial that was created in the UK a couple of years ago, uh, and it's going to be the sort of building blocks of lots of things, and apparently that's how they're smuggling in the magnetism and, ah. the control, and the control mechanism. So these these guys are these guys are very very clever. So shall I tell you the skateboarding dog story? Which yes. Brings skateboarding together, dog. It's brings together night. a couple of our favourite themes, which is animals and gin. Now I don't want everybody to get the impression that we're pissed because that would just simply not not do. Uh, and I am in fact drinking water today, which is much against my better judgment. But um, so there's a story from South Africa today uh, on Reuters about. Uh, Indlovu gin, and um, the regional Nguni word for elephant is Indlovu, and this is a uh, a, a gin that is uh, <coughs> strained through the excrement, through elephant poo. Uh, so I having yeah, having, I having turned up my nose at that at that one the other day, which was made from Sauvignon Blanc and tasted more like a grappa than a than than a gin. Uh, but the, the 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 manufacturer says, quotes, the elephants because they digest so little. They have very quick gut in transit time. It goes through them quite quickly, low gut bacteria and very poor absorption. So they're perfect for extracting all the botanicals for the gin. They're very selective. They get to choose the best leaves and the best fruits and the best flowers and the best plants. So uh, are we very... Yeah, well, also, Mr. Anderson, I have had the civet poop coffee. I've been to one of the places in uh, in Bali where the civet poop comes from the civets. The civets aren't held in terribly good conditions, I can say. But anyway, I I hope we're not putting uh, elephants in teeny-weeny cages and extracting their poop, although it does remind me of an even better story, which I will tell you if anybody wants to hear one more fast story about my family. Yep. An elderly uncle of mine went to went to South Africa and Southern Africa to cover the, or to be to to go to the um, All Blacks tour of South Africa that was cancelled while he was on his way, but he still went and so stayed at the as it was then the Salisbury Club and the Rand Club uh, in South Africa and uh, and Rhodesia as they then were, and he came back with something in his pocket, and it was a, a an elephant what's called an elephant palm from Zimbabwe. Uh, from Rhodesia. And of course, I don't know, quite know how he got it through the border, but it's a palm which has to go through the digestive system of an elephant in order to, um, to seed itself. And so he took it to Auckland Zoo and had it fed to Cashin, as I recall it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say the story may have some ropey facts in it. Uh, it's not the usual high standard of journalism that we do. Uh, and my, my, my version of the story is that he then stood behind Cashin with a sieve uh, until the um until the uh, elephant palm came out.
0: ah good so somewhere in auckland this thing yeah is yep, planted, yep. Gonna yeah
1: yeah i'm going to go you are prompting me i'm going to go to um his his rather amazing guy he's no longer with us but i his gun, the elephant palm maybe
0: Fantastic! Hey, thank you very much to everyone. It's been another uh, cracking hoon, uh, especially uh, Peter Bale, and thanks to to Robert Patman as well. And we look forward to seeing you all again for another hour's. Uh, yeah, and we'd round. like a vote. We'd like
1: a vote on whether the elephant palm story, the elephant gin story, or the whole thing on Ukraine is is the best.
0: And I've got. Uh, we're going to have to come up with an even better gin story for next week. Hey, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, anō. see you later. Thanks,
1: Bernard. Bye. Bye.